What do airplanes and electric vehicles have in common? Far less than some would have you believe. Find out why and what else may mislead consumers on this episode of the EcoCar Podcast, Mobility Mythbusters. Hello, and welcome back to the EcoCar Podcast, presented by AVTCs and powered by Argonne National Laboratory, General Motors, the U.S. Department of Energy, and MathWorks. Today, we have a very engaging conversation that dives into the latest mobility trends and what consumers should expect to see in the near future. Our discussion will feature Kelly Funkhauser, Program Manager of Vehicle Interface Testing and Head of Connected and Automated Vehicles at Consumer Reports, Kristen Coolidge, Executive Director of Human Machine Interface and Driver Interaction at JD Power, and will be moderated by Jessica Britt, Controls and Modeling Engineer for the AVTCs at Argonne National Laboratory. The trio defines some white-hot industry buzzwords and how these terms are often misused as well as provide some in-depth insights on consumer considerations for EcoCar students when entering the workforce. I'm very interested in our discussion, and you should be too, as we will all be putting on our consumer hats today. Let's throw it over to Kelly, Kristen, and Jessica. Thank you for the intro, Lucas. I'm very excited to jump into our conversation today. Kelly and Kristen, thank you so much for joining the EcoCar podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, this is a great opportunity. Thank you. So I'm going to start today by giving our listeners some background on each of our guests. Kelly Funkhauser is the Program Manager of Vehicle Interface Testing and the Head of Connected and Automated Vehicles at Consumer Reports. As an ADOS and HMI expert and former Consumer Reports Ambassador of the Year, Kelly drives thousands of miles in more than 100 test and press vehicles each year as she evaluates the in-vehicle experience of infotainment systems, ergonomics, connectivity, performance, and driver experience of advanced driver assistance systems. Kelly is a modern-day mythbuster as she looks to provide clarity on what cars can and cannot do in a time when car makers and startups tend to make announcements too good to be true. Kelly is actively working towards standardizing ADOS terminology to clear the confusion through a variety of efforts at Consumer Reports, a goal I think all of us as consumers will very much appreciate. Our second guest today is Kristen Coolidge, Executive Director of the Human Machine Interface and Driver Interaction at JD Power. Kristen is currently leading the Human Machine Interface practice at JD Power, a role created for her when she joined the company in 2014. Prior to joining the company, Kristen spent 18 years at Fiat Chrysler, now Stellantis, where she held the title of Senior Manager of HMI and Ergonomics and was responsible for developing automotive features to enhance the consumer interface by optimizing ergonomics, intuitiveness, and usability. So Kristen is very in tune with the consumer perceptions and behaviors as they interact with technology in their vehicles, a topic that will surely evolve as we enter the era of EVs. All right, so let's get started with our conversation. I want to start by discussing perspectives. EcoCar students, sponsors, and participants are used to thinking about our work and the industry as a whole from a business or industry perspective. Students are even asked to consider a target consumer audience. When you are thinking of the future of transportation and mobility, what do you think customers should be more excited about and what should they be more realistic about? I would say consumers are going to be very excited about um, all the new forms of future mobility that are being created. 
over the last few years and certainly as we look forward into the future when we think about new types of transportation so beyond vehicles thinking about scooters and electric mopeds electric bikes and you know various ownership models i think this is going to be a really exciting element of the future going forward um it, it certainly changes the landscape of how people are going to get from point a to point b taking that question that you had Jessica back into the automotive world i think one of the areas that consumers are going to be really excited about is all of the different safety improvements that manufacturers are working on specifically technologies that are really partnering with the driver to enhance their driving experience right where they're acting you've got technology that's acting um, very collaboratively with the driver so we've seen some technologies just to give some examples like blind spot warning right so this, these would be the warnings in your mirrors where that's letting the driver know that someone is next to them and certainly not to change lanes. Even technologies like rear cross traffic warning. So when you're backing out of a parking space and you can't see, you know, what traffic or even pedestrians might be coming, the system helps notify you of that. And those are some of the features that we're seeing consumers really excited about, very much appreciating that type of experience. But taking your question into the, you know, what's what's most realistic? really going back to the point that you know some of these technologies when we think about there's a lot of hype surrounding automated vehicles right that still is not here at this point right that type of technology it's going to take time before it arrives and so part of this is you know us within industry making sure that we're not um, over inflating consumer expectations and that there's not a misunderstanding that certainly could have some some dire um, consequences the other element that i I would say is important to set, you know, realism within the consumers going forward is just talking about the technology specifically and what it's capable of and what the role of the driver is. And I think that type of conversation as we go forward and thinking about technology, thinking about how does mobility change, that's going to be one of the most critical conversations so that we really um, our step in step, you know, industry, what the technology can do and consumers, what they're expecting it to do. I think that we're living in a really fascinating time where cars are starting to become an extension of our personality. And what I mean by that is that the car buying experience used to be where you can go and you can pick the sedan, the van or the SUV. But now you can go and find cars that have all of these features that you might be excited about personally, you can find ones that are technologically advanced or even the, the first implementations of, of systems ever. You can find ones that are environmentally friendly. You can find ones that uh, make the, the driving and uh, riding experience more comfortable. And so there's so many technologies right now that are being introduced to the car market. Um, and so, you, you know, I think that the most important part is that all of the vehicles maintain their safety systems and improve the safety systems while also catering to all of the personalities of car buyers these days. You know, there's a lot to keep your, your eye on, but uh, safety, I think, is where we're really kind of prioritizing right now and uh, seeing the biggest growth. 
So I want to build off of the environmentally friendly aspect of that. That's a huge trend right now. And one of our headline sponsors is General Motors. And in 2021, they've made a lot of big announcements, including a pledge of selling only zero emissions vehicles by 2035. What do product designers need to consider when designing for zero emissions? And what trade-offs do you think customers are willing to make to drive a car with zero emissions? So I think that the, the zero emissions thing is very trendy and at the forefront of everyone's discussions right now, which is really good because we are at a point where we're advancing this, the battery technology so quickly that things that we didn't think were feasible 10 years ago now suddenly are. We're not seeing these, you know, what we call compliance cars where they have, you know, 60 miles of range in them before you have to go and charge up again. So there are so many more viable options out there for consumers to purchase that have well over 200, some even over 300 miles of range before you have to charge up. And so that fact I think is the most important fact that is changing the market in terms of consumer acceptance and willingness to go and purchase these is uh, you know, finding a car that doesn't then become a hassle to own and drive. So um, yeah, I, I see the market moving towards EVs much more quickly now that they become a, a more viable option. I would say one of the trade-offs actually comes back to the consumer themselves. And this is this is where, you know, certainly you're going to have that lead versus lag type of mentality as a result. And, and much of that trade-off is really going to be in recognizing that there's a changing behavior with ownership of an EV. Um, and that changing behavior, you know, part of that is going to come through experiencing the system. Part of it's going to come through education and just realizing that, you know, I'm not looking for a gas station on every corner. I'm not just, um, you know, topping off my, my fuel to be able to run my errands for the day. In many cases, there are going to be some very strong benefits with being able to charge at home. And we're seeing those that own an EV you know, very much satisfied with that type of opportunity to charge their vehicle at home and doing so often. But but even just that recognition of, okay, when I, now like you do with your smartphone, right? You, you charge it and it's ready to go for all of your activities for the day. The same is gonna be true for your for your EV. And so some of those trade-offs are gonna be back in that consumer behavior realm. Um, but maybe to, to go back to your, your question, Jessica, and take it from a designer point of view, um, from a designer point of view, we know that the interior space for an electric vehicle really has an opportunity to change. Um, and much of that just comes from the chassis, powertrain, you know, underbody, undercarriage type of packaging that's there. And, and that's one of the exciting elements, I think, for consumers is being able to recognize that the vehicle shape and function can change in a way that's going to be well suited for the consumer going forward. Earlier today, I was actually talking with some fifth graders and I was telling them a little bit about eco car and electric vehicles. And one of the questions I got was with electric vehicles, what's going to happen to the trunk? Are cars going to have two trunks? Do they have one trunk? And that was actually a really cool conversation to have with the fifth grader. It was, we don't know what's going to happen. There's so many different options that are available. So that's definitely going to be exciting to see what happens there. So in the EV world, another thing is the Biden administration has been pretty aggressive in their plans for building an American-made EV fleet to kickstart the EV and electrification adoption throughout the U.S. 
Do you think that adoption of commercial EVs across the industry will be the catalyst that Biden hopes for? I think it will be a catalyst. I don't know if it's going to have the magnitude myself personally. Um, and, and why I say I think it will be, you know, a, a portion of that equation is what we've seen is experience and exposure will certainly help bring in the reality that electric vehicles are here, that others are using them, and certainly that they work and are functioning, right? So it starts to build the confidence through that essentially market exposure and, and, and market level adoption. And so if that's led by commercial vehicles, there will be a positive influence that comes about as a result. But really where we've seen within our consumer research at JD Power is you know, once a consumer has actually ridden in or had the opportunity to drive an EV, that's where we start to see that uh, consideration, likelihood to adopt, really start to markedly take off versus someone that's never been in one. And just for your audience, um, it's important to note that within the United States, almost two-thirds of consumers have never been in a battery electric vehicle at this point. So we, we do have that level of uphill battle, but we've seen that element of experience really paying off to consider and, and shift that likelihood to adapt. A discussion that I was having with some of my colleagues at Consumer Reports last week, we were talking about some data we had collected where we learned that the behaviors of owners of electric vehicles uh, are somewhat surprising in that uh, they're doing most of their charging on a daily basis at home instead of at a charger out in their community or at work. Um, and this is an interesting shift in the way we think about refueling our vehicles. You know, there's gas stations on every corner and all of that type of stuff. But now it seems like we're going to see this pattern of home and work-based charging infrastructure. And so if if the government fleet is quickly expanding with electric vehicles, then I see that as a benefit for the communities where the government offices are located as well, because what we'll, we'll probably see is charging infrastructure being built at these um, at and around these buildings so that they can charge their fleet. And my biggest concern, and, and I think the, the industry's biggest hurdle for EVs is the infrastructure, the charging infrastructure. And so to just get that out there into communities more quickly, I think is going to be a benefit for adoption and feasibility in becoming an electric vehicle owner. So Biden has actually committed to installing more than 500,000 EV charging stations, and Shell has pledged another 500,000 by 2025. So that's a total of a million charging stations. Do you think that's enough to satisfy the consumer market? If not, how many do you think we really need? Yeah, I think um, the data that I was referring to show that the, the chargers, the infrastructure is more needed for those road trips and long, um, long range trips that you take. And so if there's a half a million new chargers in those areas for the people that need more range, then I think that is going to actually be a huge increase knowing that everybody's home practically becomes a gas station now with electric vehicle charging. So you have the opportunity to do kind of your charging at home for your day-to-day -day type of stuff 
and uh, that removes some of the need for neighborhood gas stations or neighborhood charging stations, right? Because you can do that at home, but then you just need that kind of further distance away, which means that there's likely to be fewer needed to be able to support the change in, uh, in the technology. I absolutely agree with Kelly's comments. And I would, you know, add on that, you know, just seeing a number of stations is really a difficult um, question to answer because when you think about that versus the location of where those chargers are, right? If I'm putting it out there in a very remote location, is that the right spot versus, you know, along an interstate versus at a Walmart? And the location of these chargers is just going to be very different because it takes a while to charge in many cases, you know, depending if you're doing a fast charge or not, right? It's typically 30 minutes or more to be able to have a substantial charge. Um, and in some cases it might be hours depending on your system. So with that in mind, you want to be able to place these chargers at a location where you as a consumer are going to be staying at for a period of time. So whether that's work, whether that's grocery shopping, whether that's at a mall, et cetera, those are the places that it's going to make most sense to place the stations. Um, also, when you're thinking along the interstate and traveling, right, you know, what are we going to do in, in that type of situation to be able to, you know, allow for that type of charging, but also have charging plus entertainment. Otherwise, there's going to be a level of dissatisfaction as you're, you know, watching the minutes go by and the level of your gauge. So if there's a way to be able to create entertainment with the charging, that certainly is going to set ourselves up for a much more um, satisfying experience for the owners overall. So I do agree that we've got to look at that. The home charging, absolutely, the numbers that Kelly you know, was talking about, it has been an overwhelming area where consumers are taking advantage of that and very satisfied with that type of opportunity. But we do have to be realistic that not everyone has the ability to charge at home. And so that means, you know, those within apartments, those within, you know, just different types of living quarters may not have the ability. So this infrastructure portion of the equation is really critical one for us to solve because, you know, people need to have that, you know, they're solutions oriented, right? To be able to have this to function in their daily life, right? What is it going to take to be able to make that work? I'm glad Kristen brought that up um, because that's that's something that is a growing area of concern, right? The urban, the city uh, owner of an electric vehicle, maybe they live in a big apartment building and, you know, even if they do have a charging station, they maybe only have a handful of them, right? So not every resident can charge every day and every night. And so it's it's a really interesting area that I, I like to kind of uh, keep my eye on because the um, the idea of having, you know, a single charger along a road, you know, in, in parking spots rather than having a, a station like a gas station or a charging station um, so that you can leave your car there over time. Gas stations, you know, you go in, you fill up, you're out in five minutes. But with charging, like Kristen said, you know, it's a more it takes a lot more time. So either have them in parking lots where they're convenient to go and, and fill your time with an activity or do, you know, smaller individual charging stations along the curbside in a neighborhood or something like that. So it's, I don't know where we're headed. I've seen a mix of all of those things and we'll see what catches on. I think that's going to bring up one of the, one element of um, charging etiquette 
that we'll have yet to experience from a social dynamic point of view, right? So just recognizing, you know, when your vehicle is done charging and recognizing that someone else may be waiting for that charging spot. So that I think is going to be an interesting dynamic as we go forward, just kind of setting up those rules of engagement for um, charging at a when I was an EcoCar student back at Georgia Tech, we would take our plug-in hybrid Camaro to charge at the local Target. And there were often times where we could not find a spot and we'd have to park somewhere else, wait for people to leave, and then we could eventually charge our car. And that would definitely add on to the amount of time that we were planning to be at Target. And it's like, so what do we do? Um, so I think that's definitely going to be an interesting thing to see how that kind of goes forward in the future. So I want to change gears here a little bit. The mobility industry has been full of big time promises that fall short in products that sound far too good to be true. For example, Tesla's autopilot mode certainly does not provide the experience a customer may expect when reading Tesla's offerings. In your opinion, what responsibility do automakers have to clearly explain their product capabilities, such as advanced driver assistance features or the range of an electric vehicle? Kelly's company and my company, along with multiple others, um, such as AAA and National Safety Council and Society of Automotive Engineers and um, a collaboration with Automated Vehicle Coalition called PAVE, we've been working on this document to standardize this terminology. And it's really been rooted in the fact that, you know, there are some of these technology names that have a dozen plus, and in some cases, two dozen plus different names that a singular technology goes by. And just to frame, you know, why is that a big deal? Well, when we think about these driver assistance technologies, there really isn't anything else in a consumer's life like this. So when you think about the consumer's mental model, like how is that actually going to work, you know, to create an analogy on, on a different scale, right? When apps were starting to be introduced into the vehicle, people had their smartphone as their basis of how they're expecting it to work. And in some cases, right, the vehicle wasn't performing in the same way. And that brought about, you know, different type of, of question. But when you think about automatic emergency braking, how do you really set up that mental model for a consumer, how that works, or a adaptive cruise control, right? That vehicle is going to slow down. I mean, it's difficult to describe, explain, et cetera. And so this concept of creating a very equal playing ground of understanding what this technology is, what it can do, what that role of the driver is going to be, is so crucial to essentially set this, you know, this new owner of this new technology that they've never experienced up for success. We want to make sure as they're driving out of that, that dealership with their brand new vehicle and they haven't had a new vehicle, let's say in five years or 10 years, things are chiming and beeping and buzzing and that they understand what it is and, and why it's doing that. And then certainly how that technology is partnering with their driver experience. But we want to make sure that level of understanding is there. And even simply so much as, you know, some of the consumer research that we do at JD Power, it's, it's just trying to understand if consumers know what they have on their vehicle. And in many cases, they don't, they're not recognizing the name or the technology. And this is even after months of ownership. So we want to do as much as we can to be as clear as possible with what the technology is that they own. 
make sure that they're not, you know, that they haven't paid for something that they're not getting value from, right? Recognize how that's supposed to work so that they keep these systems on because with these driver assistance systems, it's meant to improve safety as well as convenience. And so if that those systems are turned off because it's nagging, it's annoying, it's, it's not operating in a way that that consumer thinks is useful, then they're going to turn it off. So that doesn't have the long-term benefits of safety, as well as, as we think about like getting to that next level of automation and capability, right? As a technology progresses in its capability, if that consumer has either lost their trust or dissatisfied, what's the likelihood that they're going to want that next level of advancement? So it's so critical that we get this level of positive experience at this stage of the game, right, with this first introduction to these technologies so that, you know, we keep people interested and, and certainly keep them engaged to want that next level capability when it is available. Yeah, Kristen brings up a, a really good point. And, um, you know, talking about the first experience with a lot of these systems and features and, and vehicles that have all these new bells and whistles um, it's it's so important that consumers can immediately understand the capabilities and limitations of these systems when they first use them. If I buy a new car and I drive it home and then I have all of these things beeping at me, first of all, I have no idea what the beep's coming from, why it's beeping, all of this stuff. It's it's going to quickly make me want to shut it off, like Kristen was saying. And, you know, I may not ever even turn it back on. So any potential for safety benefits are out the window because it's, it's as if the car didn't have it anymore. Um, so, you know, conveying the, the capabilities and limitations to the driver is absolutely important for them to understand why and what and how it's doing its thing. But also for manufacturers, they need to design the systems in a way that makes them enjoyable or helpful to use. So given all of the variations in the implementation of these features, as well as the names and the buttons and really everything about them, do you think that we need regulations to protect the customer? Say that, you know, consumers look to regulations as, you know, essentially that third party source of validating that this um, technology is okay. And, and I'm saying that in the context of, you know, as we get to higher levels of automation, I mean, almost to that where the vehicle is maintaining, you know, that full automated capability. At this point in time, we see a lot of hesitation from consumers because they don't trust that there won't be technology failures and errors, et cetera. So we need to build in some inherent trust mechanisms to be able to help qualify that this technology, this vehicle, that type of capability is roadworthy and ready to be able to help build trust for the consumers to be able to then, you know, be willing to experience that type of technology. So when we hear the term autopilot, we likely think of autopilot in a plane, right? We're all familiar with the going in a plane and there's a pilot and they push a button and then the plane starts flying itself. And, you know, that's not exactly how it works. We all don't have enough technical background and knowledge to really know what goes on. But, you know, the, the perception of autopilot is that it's just this magic black box where you turn it on and then it starts flying and, uh, and then you turn it off and then now you're flying. So when we take that analogy and put it into cars as Tesla has, they've said that they have this autopilot feature. What that implies is the driver is going to push a button and the car is going to start driving itself. And 
with autopilot, it's kind of a misuse of that term to label their package because the car is not driving itself at all. It is assisting the driver by adding some steering and speed controls. But when it comes down to it, the, the car is not uh, foolproof. And the manufacturers, you know, even put out messages that say, make sure you're paying attention because this car is likely to run into an issue where you're going to have to take over. And so when it comes to labeling things, we hear these terms, automated, assistance, autonomous, all of these terms. And so you don't quite know what that means. To explain it all in a nutshell is there are assistance features where the car is doing something alongside you while you are driving that can help you or make your driving experience safer or more convenient or, you know, then you become less stressful like adaptive cruise control. It's helping moderate that speed for you, but it's in no way autonomous speed control where it's going to make the decisions as to, you know, based on information that it's going to just do it all for you. It's assisting you. And then there is autonomous, which means that it's a system that is basically its own living body. It's really important to realize that an autonomous car is somewhat of an abstract concept. It's so much better that we talk about these features as features instead of cars, right? So um, there's a lot of confusion when you say, I have a level two car. If you know anything about the SAE levels, that, that has some uh, meaning for its capabilities. But the reality is that what exists out there in the market in terms of consumer vehicles is that there are these features that you can turn on or you can turn off. The car itself, you know, it's not always on, so it doesn't make the car that. So I can have a car where I turn everything off in it. And now I'm in this mode where I'm completely manually driving and I can turn on a couple features at a time and it's starting to assist me. And then I turn on a couple more and now it's doing more things for me or with me. And so when talking about cars, it's not an autonomous car or anything like that. It's, it's these features that can create different modes. I'm in a mode where I'm completely manually driving or I'm in autonomous mode, which I'm doing absolutely nothing. But the features are what's important to talk about instead of labeling the cars or the system, because you can be in kind of different states of which systems are on and active versus not. So better to talk about automated features rather than the, the system, if you can make adjustments to how the system is performing and at what level. On our last podcast, while discussing EcoCar students entering the workforce, Michael Barabee said, being able to relate to the common person trying to live their life is just as important as being a gearhead. How would each of you recommend EcoCar students better relate to the customer as they progress in their career? And do you have any experiences or resources that you could share? So I think one, my one piece of advice would be, you know, just the recognition, especially within the automotive world itself, is that we're all drivers, we're all passengers. We've we've been around cars for the, you know, near, nearly entire exist our own personal existence. And so with that comes our own personal biases. And it's important for you going into industry to recognize that while your experience is important, your experience is not necessarily indicative of everyone's experience. And so when I was at 
Fiat Chrysler, we had a phrase of, um, you know, many times an executive would be taking a development vehicle home overnight, testing out some systems, and we would get the feedback the next day. And we had to be very careful recognizing that that executive, even though they're in that place of power, um, that it's a singular piece of information. It's not necessarily a, I must change the system because, you know, of this one person's experience. And so we, we balanced that input along with a multitude of other user testing with people of a variety of backgrounds and a variety of different tests, tests that were performed to be able to take that in aggregate, right, in totality to then understand how best to design the system. So just keep yourself in check when you're having those, you know, design reviews and talking about different systems, et cetera, just recognizing that what's intuitive to you might not necessarily be what's intuitive to the person sitting next to you. Yeah, I'll just rehash exactly what Kristen just said. I think that that's the most important thing when uh, discussing the design and usability of, of any system, right, is that you have experience with certain things and doing certain things in certain ways. And that might not be the same way that someone else uses something. One of my favorite examples is within the assessment team. Some of the team members like auto climate systems. You just push auto and it's got it, right? It does it. But I hate auto. So, you know, I don't, I don't even need a button that says auto because in the winter, I'm wearing, you know, knee high leather boots and I don't want heat on my feet because they're already kind of sweaty, right? Um, but I want heat on my face because it's cold outside. And then in the summer, I don't want air conditioning on my feet because I'm wearing flip-flops, but I want air conditioning on my face because it's hot outside. And so I use it in a different way than, you know, other people on my team and that's okay. And that doesn't mean that it's better or worse. It just is different. The hardest part of scoring and rating and testing systems is determining what is good and, and bad on a scale to create a score. And so just because it's different, you have to determine if that makes it better or worse and it's hard. And if you're not sure how other people use things or what their opinions are, ask them. Don't make assumptions for how you think someone might use something or what they might like, just ask them. All right, well, we are nearing the end of our conversation and I want to take a minute just to thank you once again, Kelly and Kristen, for joining us today. Uh, your experiences and knowledge were really great. I know I learned a lot, so hopefully our listeners did too. So once again, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jessica. And a very special shout out to Kelly and Kristen for joining us on the EcoCar podcast. What a conversation that was. Who knew how important the correct use of adjectives could be when it comes to connected and automated vehicles and their features? It seems our time has come to an end today. Thank you very much for joining the second episode of the EcoCar podcast. Be sure to follow EcoCar on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube for podcast updates. The EcoCar podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you're listening now. We'll talk to you soon.